0: Good morning. Well, maybe some of you feel like that this uh, every week, but this morning's gonna be a little different, okay? I know we're, we're kind of different just in and of ourselves, but uh, it's gonna be a little different from um, how we normally approach our teaching time. Um, I don't know if you're counting, but last night I counted, and we are on our 26th study in the Old Testament book of the prophet of Ezekiel. That's impressive, because you're still here. You're doing good. Let me tell you, that's awesome. It, it, it has been so good to, to walk through what it is that, that the Lord gave Ezekiel to speak to his people, because it's spoken to us as well, hasn't it? Because it, it's God's Word, and, and every bit of it Um, speaks to us so clearly. Um, Ezekiel, and if you remember, we started back in chapter 1 in what Ezekiel called the fifth year. It was the fifth year of the captivity of Judah. So if you remember, uh, the nation of Judah, God's people, had been um, attacked by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and um, many of the people had been taken as captives Back to um, the land of Babylon, and that's just kind of a short summarization. It was actually a rather complicated situation, but at this point, there's a bunch of people in Babylon who were from Judah. They were Jews living there, and there were some people still back in Jerusalem. And Ezekiel is a prophet. He he's God's man, and he's speaking God's message to God's people there in Babylon. But he's talking a lot about what God is going to be doing back in Jerusalem, how God, is, God has been warning them and warning them and warning them, not just in those days, but in the, in the centuries that preceded it, that God's people cannot worship idols, that God's people cannot be unfaithful to him. And if they are, that he will discipline them. And so now God is bringing that discipline, in, and Ezekiel has been warning over and over again the time's up that the hammer is coming down, that God is going to deal with his people. He is going to destroy Jerusalem. And so in those first um, 28 chapters that we've been looking at, that's been uh, the bulk, the the most of what we've been seeing is that God has been warning his people that he's going to deal with them. And then a, a couple of chapters back, some things changed and God began to talk to his people, not just about what he was going to do in disciplining them, but what he was going to do in bringing his judgment upon the peoples around them. And if you remember, we we looked at some really interesting prophecies about the city state of Tyre. Well, this morning, we are going to look at four chapters of Ezekiel's prophecy. They are four chapters that Ezekiel has gathered together. I know some of you are worried. Four chapters. I didn't bring lunch, but don't worry. Mike is going to teach two chapters to this side while I'm teaching two chapters over. That probably won't work, will it? We're we're hoping to um, tag team uh, these chapters together. Obviously, we're not going to touch everything in them. But there are four chapters that Ezekiel has gathered because he didn't prophesy them together. Uh, In fact, these um, prophecies that Ezekiel has gathered together in these four chapters um, take place over a span of about 15 years. And, And some come before others, and he has gathered them together, not chronologically, but topically, because they all deal with God dealing with Egypt. And so, this morning, we're going to be taking a look at that. Mike, why don't you start us off?
1: Well, um, it's interesting because when I, when I got up here, there's a group of young men in this room that, when they saw this chair, instantly started snickering. And there's a couple of them here. But uh, I actually fell don't out of my chair off. while I was teaching, <laughs> teaching in my discipleship class out of this chair. And uh, I leaned, leaned over to grab my Bible, which I'd set on the ground, and I just, I like balanced on two legs for like... I, it was a good 10 seconds, like just up on two, like, oh, ah, oh, ah, oh, oh. and they all sat there like spectators like you did, like you are right now, and, and just watched as I balanced in between life and death, and then, and then it, it was death. I, I went over, I kicked the stand, my computer went flying, like I, I fell on the floor, it was, and they laughed. Um, so if I start to do that, I'm glad that Corey's on my left because he can <laughs> help me fall faster. You better get going. We got four uh, I know, chapters. I know we got four chapters to do. So you guys, here's the thing is, as we look at these four chapters, they're concerning Egypt. And what's interesting about um, these chapters is, is something that we'll probably point out in other places as well, is that these, these are not necessarily chronologically going to flow. Um, these, these aren't put into place where it's like, and then this happened, this happened, and this happened. They are grouped together for a reason, much like the Psalms. When you read the Psalms, the Psalms don't flow together in a chronological order. They are designed and crafted and put into the place where they are to tell a story, to paint a picture, to be reminders. And so as we look at the prophecy about Egypt, this is to shock us into place. It's to give us a reminder that God does take sin seriously and that God does absolutely fulfill what he says he's going to do. And we've seen this throughout Ezekiel already, but now concerning the nations that are around Israel, God is going to fulfill exactly what He says in these chapters, what He says He will do. And so we want to take note of these things because um, when we look at our lives a lot of times, we try to explain away our arrogance and our pride. We try and justify the things we do. And we make room for those things. And so when you look, and, and as we go through this, you can keep track with us. We are going to go from chapter 29 to 30. We're going to flow in this way. So if you want to, we'll try and call those verses out that we're pointing out. But something that you notice right at the beginning in chapter 29 is when this prophecy comes to Ezekiel. He says to him in verse two, son of man, face Pharaoh, king of Egypt, prophesy against him and against all of Egypt. Speak to him and say, this is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against you, Pharaoh. Big problem right away. Anytime that God looks at us and where we stand and what we've done and says, I am against you, you understand that this is us in our sin. When we willingly sin, when we sin and we, we take that, we, before Christ saved us, we were in this place where God says, look, I'm against you. And so he sends his son for us to die for us so that when we believe in Jesus, we're no longer against him. We are now on God's side. But here's the thing. We can't go back to those ways anymore. And so what we see in this chapter is a reminder for us. We can't be in this place where we're comfortable with our sin, where we're comfortable with our arrogance, because look at what the situation of Pharaoh was. He says, you're a great monster in in verse 3 of chapter 29, lying in the middle of his Nile. And he says this, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. You ever sit in your house, in your coziest chair? Maybe this is a guy thing, I don't know. Look at this house. Look at that lawn outside. I am mighty. Right? We get this arrogance and this pride about us. I mean, seriously, when you mow your lawn and it looks better than your neighbor's, don't lie. Don't lie. You're out there like, A little bit better, a little bit nicer, a little bit cleaner looking. That's how I live. Go sit in my chair and watch the game because I already did my work. It is finished. We're that way. We act that way. And you guys, here's the problem that arrogance, that pride, that independence look at this that I have created. This should bring back some comparisons to us. And and what's funny is we're gonna be talking about the Babylonians in in these passages and connecting the Babylonians and and, and how God's going to use them to bring destruction on Egypt and how he he used them to bring destruction on the nations around them. What's interesting is that's what got Nebuchadnezzar into trouble, that same attitude. Look at this mighty kingdom which I have built. God's gonna make it very clear clear in these four chapters. No, 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 no. I put the weapon in your hand. In fact, the weapon I put in your hand was my weapon. You see, everything that we have is His. We are stewards only. And we have to remember, we can't let that pride crop up in our heart. God made us to glorify Him. When we cease to do that, we are not fulfilling our purpose. We are not fulfilling the purpose we put here to be. And so here's the thing. Scripture encourages us encourages over again. I believe it's Psalm 37, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. we like, oh yeah, trust in the Lord with all your heart. I love that. Don't lean on your own understanding. Simplistic answer. If you say, why? Because you don't understand everything. You don't know everything. You have limits. He does not you have limits. In all your ways, acknowledge God. Then he makes your path straight if you acknowledge God. But the problem with Pharaoh in Egypt is that he acknowledged something that was wrong. He believed a false reality. Look at the Nile that I have created. Pretty fancy, huh? It's like, dude, you didn't pour that river. Don't act like it.
0: That's really, that, that description that Mike gave of, of sitting in the backyard, I didn't know he was watching But aren't we right there? But that is not what we were created for. That is not what we were made for. Think back, Genesis chapter one. God created us, God created us to be with him, to be for him, to be in relationship with him, to be in the garden with him. Everything everything about who we are to be, uh, Colossians 1.16 describes it as well, that we were made by and for Jesus Christ. Um, the, the best picture, the best picture of all the scripture of what our life is supposed to look like is not Pharaoh here sitting in the middle of the Nile thinking that he is independent of God, thinking that he is able to handle things on his own, but no, it's John 15, Right? It's where Jesus talks to his disciples and he says, listen, here's how it is supposed to be. I am the vine and you are to be the branches. I'm the vine, you're to be the branches. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, that sounds really nice and poetic until you start thinking about what it says. Apart from Christ, you can't do squat. You, you have nothing. You have no ability. There is no life that flows out of you. But our life comes from our connection with the Lord. And so if we do not pursue, if we do not seek after, if we do not cling to Christ, we will not have life. We will dry up and wither like last fall's pruning. There's no way that we can be fruitful. There's no way that we can accomplish what God wants. And that's why God is going after Egypt. Understand this. Please understand this. Sometimes people like to paint a picture of God in the Old Testament and say, oh, well, that's the Old Testament God. That's like God before coffee. Okay? Don't mess with that God because he is cranky. No. No, 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 no. A hundred times No. God is dealing with Egypt. Why? He says it over and over and over again. Then all, look at verse six, then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I'm a Lord. God is calling them to himself. He wants to be in relationship with us. He created us for that relationship and that is his goal. That is his purpose. That is what he is seeking and he is willing to go to any end. He is willing to go to any extreme, including bringing these people to the place of judgment, ending their lives on this earth and bringing them into his very presence. Because understand this, remember this, we don't end when this life ends. We just travel. We leave this life to stand before God. And God will bring someone even into his presence as he pursues them. Mike? I feel
1: like it's a commercial break. Um, (laughs) Back to you, Mike, out here in the field. Um, What's interesting, you guys, is as he's talking about that, you know, when we think about eternity and how we live here, we think about what we're leaning on, we think about what we're trusting in, right? You realize that you're supposed to be living kingdom life now, You're supposed to be showing people who we should trust in now, how we depend on God now. And so what's interesting about that that picture is, as Corey read that first part of verse six, I want to read the second part of verse six. He read this, then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord, for they have been a staff made of reed to the house of Israel. If you look at verse seven, it says, when Israel grasped you by the hand, you splintered, tearing all their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you shattered and made all their hips unsteady. Here's the point. Any hope in people, in man, when God is at work is futile. Any hope that you put in, in mankind when it should be placed in God is futile. And so Israel had leaned on Egypt historically, this nation that they've been delivered from. Now think about that picture. They were delivered from slavery and bondage in Egypt. And where were they going when they were in a time of struggle and trial. They were going back to leaning on Egypt again. They were trying to go back to slavery. Oh, we never do that, do we? When you're struggling, when you're going through a hard time, you go back to the thing that you had before and go, you know, that wasn't so bad back there in sin. Are you kidding? Don't be so nearsighted. Remember the big picture and remember that God is the only one you should be leaning on because eternity matters and that's the only one that we live to please anyway. And he's the one that brought you out of that slavery. Amen? God delivered you from that. Don't go back there again. When you start to go back to your sin, that's us returning to Egypt. And that's a reed that we're leaning on. You realize that's not strong, right? That a reed is not a stable thing to lean on. That's like when you walk over and you, like, kick the thing out from your friend that he's leaning on and they fall on the ground. It just breaks on its own. And don't. But, like, it, it just... I've been down that road. I don't want to go down that road again. You guys... What God says here absolutely matters, and as he continues on, he says, I'm going to bring judgment on Egypt for their own actions, and he's going to thereby show his people, I can break them. Why aren't you leaning on me? If they shatter and are frail, and to the point of where it says in verse 11 that it's going to be so hardcore what's happening to them that the land will be uninhabited, for 40 years. He says, when this destruction comes that I'm going to bring on them, their land will not even be inhabitable. Why are you trusting in them? Why are you believing in them? Why are you hoping in them? They can't hold you up. I can. He's the rock of our salvation. Why aren't we looking to God for our strength?
0: This next section, beginning in verse 17, is, is one of my favorite in this chapter. Um, because I picture in my head the reaction of Ezekiel's listeners when he said uh, just the first few words here. Now remember, go back to verse 1 of this chapter in the 10th year. In the 10th year, God begins declaring all that's going to take place on Egypt, his judgment on Egypt. Oh, but look there at verse 17. In the 27th year, 17 years later, and God is still promising to deal with Egypt. I don't know what life is like for you, but I know for me, there's a lot of times where I'm going, God, any time now. I've been praying about this for like two days, okay? And that's like a long time. And so it is time for you to step in and to deal and to move heaven and earth so that I can have this thing. And yet here's God's people who have been promised by God that God is going to do this thing. 17 years later, they're still waiting for it. Now here's the thing that we have to understand. God is good for his word. God is going to keep his word, but he's going to do it in his time. And that's a lesson that we need to to grab a hold of. We need to understand. That God does not work by our timetable. And there are many, many times that, that we wait and we wait and we begin to accuse God of being unfaithful, of being undependable, when the reality is we're just impatient. We are not waiting for the Lord to do what the Lord's going to do. Now, it isn't just Israel that had to wait. Um, God had sent Nebuchadnezzar, you can see there in verse 18, if you remember from a few studies back, God had sent Nebuchadnezzar to attack the city of Tyre. He besieged that place for 13 years. 13 years. And it says he made all of his soldiers have sore shoulders and bald heads. I mean, he wore them out, is what it's saying. And he got nothing for it. Because by the time he finally won, There was nothing left to win. And so God says, now, now I'm going to send you to Egypt. And the prize that you thought you were going to get in Tyre, you're going to get from Egypt. Instead, Egypt will be your wages for doing my work at the city of Tyre. It's interesting because there are so many times that something doesn't work out the way we think. Like Nebuchadnezzar, you know, maybe we're even faithful over a long haul and we're doing the thing God's called us to do and it doesn't turn out the way we think it should. What we've got to remember is we don't know the whole plan yet. We don't understand the whole dynamic. Here's a great verse. This would be a perfect life verse for you. I don't do life verses, but if you gotta do a life verse, you might as well do this one. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Let me put that into English. God is amazing, and I don't understand a thing that he does. Now, does that describe your life? I think it does. He is trustworthy. He is amazing, but don't expect that you are going to understand everything that he does.
1: It's interesting on that thought process, if you look at verse 20 of this chapter, it says, I've given him, um, speaking of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he says, I've given him the land of Egypt as the pay he labored for, notice this part, since they worked for me. Since they worked for me. I don't even know that they even knew what they were doing or why they were doing it, but no matter what, they were doing God's will all along. It was what God had brought to happen. What's interesting is we can look at our own circumstances, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we can look at our own circumstances and be like, how's God going to redeem this? You ever felt that way? You looked at your life and been like, no, 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 no. This is a struggle for absolutely no reason. How is God going to do this? How's God going to work something through this? If God can use Babylon to get his will done, he can use the broken pipe in your house to teach you patience. Seriously. Like, we we look at these circumstances that we go through, like, oh, this is just the worst. Any American that says, I'm like, really? Is it really the worst? Do you mean that? Because if we actually believe that, we need an adjustment. We need an adjustment. And remember that God's going to work through these things. He is faithful. Like, but my life sucks. Don't worry. It's short.
0: That is so encouraging. (laughs)
1: if we didn't have eternity in Christ this would this would be hopeless wouldn't it we would have no hope but we have hope because of why Jesus we get him we get eternity don't get stuck looking at the traffic light it just takes longer you know that come on 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 listen you're late because of your own self you guys there is hope even here in Ezekiel 29:21 In that day, I will cause a horn to sprout for the house of Israel. I will enable you to speak out among them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. You guys, the Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming. He came after this and he died on the cross for our sin. He rose on the third day. Hallelujah. Amen. We celebrated it last week. Don't forget the next part. And he comes again. Jesus is coming again. He is going to come and establish his kingdom. Things are going to be done his way. Don't forget that, Christian. We need to remember. This is a strong reminder of that. As we continue on into chapter 30, um, this is going to call out really Egypt's doom. And it's going to kind of highlight the nations around them and, and, and point out some very important things. You've trusted in Egypt. You're going down too. You've become like them, you've trusted in them, you've, you've been in association with them, you've relied upon them, and here's, here's something that we need to walk away from this chapter. There's other things, but something we need to walk away from this chapter with. Never forget that our reliance and our association should be with Jesus first. You are not to identify with any personality type that you have. You're not to identify with a possession that you own. P.S. You don't really own it. It's on loan. He says, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Wail, woe, because of that day, verse 2 says in chapter 30, for a day is near, a day belonging to the Lord is near. He's saying, this is going to be nasty, will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. God says, I'm coming to judge. Here's the thing. There's lots of references to a day of the Lord coming in prophecy. We know that the great day of the Lord is still coming. The one that we read about in Revelation that says God's judgment, God's wrath is finally going to be poured out. And here's the thing. Whose side are we on? Who do we belong to? Who do we associate with? That's what we should be living right now. Never fall for the false reality that Satan's winning. Never fall for the false reality that Satan is winning. He's not. He's already done we're just waiting for the sentencing. You guys, Satan's going to go down. Satan loses. We know the end of the story. Why are we living like he has victory now? He doesn't. He's a defeated foe. We fight from a victory, not for a victory. Amen? We're fighting from the victory of Christ. Head up, Christian. Doesn't matter what this world throws at you. God wins. But we need to look at these things and go, am I associating with all the wrong kinds of things? Am I associating with the world rather than Christ? God's chosen tool is Nebuchadnezzar. But all of this is to prove something. God's judgment that's coming upon these nations is so that they would know that he is the Lord. It's spoken of all throughout these four chapters so that they will know that I am the Lord. What does that mean? No one tops God. No one is sovereign like God. Never forget it, Christian. Never forget that.
0: It it had to be a crazy thing um, for these Jews that Ezekiel is speaking to, to hear that God is going to use Nebuchadnezzar, this absolute pagan, this monster of a man and a monster of a nation, that he is going to use them to do his work. You know, that's something that Habakkuk had to deal with as well. That's something that, that shocked him. If you go back and you read, there in the first chapter of, of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is saying to God, why did you name me this? No, 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 that wasn't it. It was, God, why are you doing what you're doing? I'm sorry. You're rubbing off on me. I didn't it's see that not coming. not my fault.
1: <laughs> it's always my fault.
0: I feel like falling off my stool. So. <laughs> He's asking God, why are you doing what you're doing? This is crazy. Why are you not intervening? And God comes back and says, oh, I am intervening. And I'm bringing Nebuchadnezzar. He's my man. At which point Habakkuk just faints. He, this is the worst possible answer that it could have been. Here's what Habakkuk needs to realize. Here's what we need to realize. Because there are times, are there not? There are times in your life Where you look around and there's a Nebuchadnezzar who is messing with you in a big way. There is a Nebuchadnezzar who is bringing chaos into your life. This may be hard to swallow, but here's the thing we've got to remember. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. The Lord is going to use Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Egypt, to deal with Egypt. But look at verse 10 and onward there in chapter 30 again and again and again, the Lord says, I will do this. He says, I will put an end to the wealth of Egypt. A little later, he says, I will dry up the Nile. Again and again and again, as he describes this day of the Lord, this day when he is going to bring his reckoning, his judgment, he says, I will bring desolation. I will destroy the idols. I will make Pathros a desolation and I will pour out my wrath. This is God's thing. This is the work that God is doing. Understand this. God is not aloof or distant from our world, from our life, from the things that are happening. He is in the mix. He is working. And he is working even through the things that we look at and think, man, this is a disaster. This is going bad. God is in the midst of it because he is sovereign. Think about this. Listen to what, to what the Lord said to his people in the midst of the Assyrians, the previous neighborhood bully, when they were coming down upon God's people. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. I make a lot of plans. Few of them work out. God will never say that. As he has planned, so shall it be.
1: Boy, isn't it encouraging too to think about how when God plans to do something, that it's better if we let him do it because we wear ourselves out trying to execute our own plans, don't we? Wear ourselves into the ground, trying to make our thing happen, our thing work. And God says, would you just follow me? Would you just trust me that I know what I'm doing? Boy, it's easier said than done, isn't it? But that's pride, because we actually think we know what's best. God's showing his people here. Yeah, if you looked around you, I could see how, uh, you know, maybe Egypt is a logical choice. But you know what? I'm going to break their arm. Look at the next section. You're like, oh, geez, God, man, that's intense. The 11th year, the first month on the seventh day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Look, it hasn't been bandaged. No medicine has been applied and no splint put on the bandage so they can grow strong enough to handle a sword. He's saying, I'm breaking the military might of Egypt. And he goes on. If you're like, wow, that's that's really, I didn't expect God to walk up and just break someone's arm. Well, you should. He put Jacob's hip out of joint. God does what's necessary. God does what's necessary. Look at the rest of it there in chapter 30. As it continues on, it says this, therefore, verse 22, this is what the Lord God says. Look, I'm against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I'll break his arms. Wait a second, we're on a double thing now. I'll break his arms, both the strong one and the one already broken. And I'll make the sword fall from his hand. You're like, yeah, I'd drop my sword if you rebroke my arm and then broke the other one too. What's God saying? First of all, he's not saying he's cutting off his head. Did you notice that? There's some hope here. There's some hope here for redemption, but here's the thing. Don't push God. I can't help but think of Jacob wrestling with God on the wrong side of the Jabbok River. You know, wrestling with God, and God's like, no, and he says, it says, Jacob wouldn't stop. He wouldn't relent. So, there goes your hip. Hosea tells us that Jacob wept and begged the Lord to bless him before he left because the greater blesses the lesser. You guys, don't push God to the point where he has to break you, because God will do what is necessary to save your soul. And yet, we see grace in there, don't we? We see grace in that picture. God could have wiped Egypt off the face of the earth to the point where they're an ancient civilization that we never saw again, but he gave them a subdued nation after this. A lesson nation after this. God showed them grace. Gentiles, Egypt. There's a message there. God is willing to do what it takes to readjust us, to get us back to where we belong. And from the Jews' perspective, you imagine they wanted him to just wipe them out. You know? You picture kind of Jonah with the Assyrians, with Nineveh. You know? I'm going to wait up here for you to whack these people, God. God shows them mercy. Now I'm mad at you. You know? You guys, never despise the grace of God because it's the same thing that we require. Never despise the grace of God when he pours it out on somebody else because it's the same thing that we need every single day. In fact, we should pray for the grace and mercy of God on our enemies, on our
0: enemies. We so should pray. You're saying it's wrong when I want God to give you justice and me mercy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's... That's where we sit. That's where we sit. So often, isn't it? It's the lawn. It's the lawn. It's. When when you pass a police officer,
1: (laughs) and you look down
0: at the speedometer,
1: this happened this morning.
0: You're praying for mercy.
1: My kids are my kids in here.
0: But when that guy drives past you, uh huh. Aren't you <laughs> praying to see him pulled over?
1: And I did this morning. So here's the thing. We're driving up to 41 this morning. I can't believe you just said that out loud. And this truck goes by, and a state trooper is close. He had no lights yet, but he's close. I was like, <laughs> wonder what he did, you know? And, and he, he, wasn't, he wasn't doing anything yet, but I, I, I held my peace, and we, we get out on the highway, and sure enough, right past pole line, he flicks the lights on, he pulls over, I was like, Yeah! But when it's me, and I'm driving down the freeway, and you know, totally not, I have no explanation for how my cruise control got set to that high. And you bomb by that state trip, you're like oh. You're getting saved all over again, you know? And, and here's the thing, it's, it's exactly that. It just happened to me this morning. My kids witnessed my carnality. Ha ha! Boom! You know, but we can't be that way. Jesus taught us better than that. He said, you've heard it say to mistreat people that mistreat you, but that's not the truth. He says, I say to you, pray for your enemies. Pray for them.
0: Ten minutes, two chapters.
1: Let's do it. Okay, so here's the thing. Chapter 31. As we get into chapter 31, what God's going to do in this chapter through Ezekiel is he's going to show us that Egypt, even though they may seem to his people like they're, they're not defeatable, and even though Egypt themselves may believe that they are not defeatable, he's going to say, you want to know uh, something just to remember what I did to Assyria? Here's what I did to Assyria. Don't doubt that I can't do it to you. In fact, it's going to happen to you. Don't think for a second that just because we live in a different time or a different location that God's Justice and judgment doesn't apply. And don't bank on him continuing to show grace to you when you are in unrepentant sin. God will deal with it. And God says, you want an example? Let's look at Assyria.
0: He compares Assyria to a huge, beautiful tree. And it's a picture that God uses several times in Scripture. Maybe you've read this how he describes how all the beasts of the earth are under the branches and the birds build their nests there. And then someone comes along and they they do what we do here in North Idaho. They chop that thing down and they make it into firewood. And that big glorious tree is now just kindling. And what God is saying is, Egypt, you think you are big. You think you are too big to be threatened by anyone but I can handle you. And he uses a picture of Assyria and he says, Egypt, you're just like them. And by the way, he's going to use Babylon to cut down Egypt. God gives that same picture to the king of Babylon, Daniel chapter four, remember that? And God humbles King Nebuchadnezzar. He chops him down as well. There, are, there is no one who is beyond God's reach. I think there's two reasons we need to remember that. One, as we have people over us who are messing with our lives, people who are are making things difficult, and maybe we are helpless in that situation, what we have to remember is we don't have to try to take them out. They are not out of God's reach. They are within his grasp. The other thing that we should remember is what Mike talked about we too, we too are accountable to the Lord. Now, you and I, we are saved by grace. Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. But now we're in his family. And as our dad, he disciplines us. And he holds us accountable. Even to the point that Scripture talks about the fact that when we come to the end of our life, That there will be a a bema seat judgment, this cleansing judgment. Now, don't think about it as as if God is going to put you in time out for half of heaven. You know, I've got to be in time out for half of eternity because I just barely got in. No, 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 no. He burns away. He cleanses us of all that is carnal and fleshly. He does reward us for all that is spiritual and that is good. It is a blessing, it is a good thing, but it is an accountability. We need to understand that. We need to remember that and we need to live our lives taking that into account. 32.
1: It's interesting to me as we get to chapter 32, after the picture especially of 31, that we have a lament. We have a lament for Pharaoh. Um, we've read this in Ezekiel thus far. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in the death or the destruction of the wicked. He wants people to turn to him. Not just his people, but his people were put in this land to be a light to the nation, nations around them as well. God loves his creation. And so it's not a good thing. It's not a glorious thing when wicked nations fall. In fact, the death and the loss of life that comes at the hand of God as judgment is never celebrated. It's a tragedy. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This lament and the reality of Egypt's judgment is something that's to be grieved. And I think that a lot of times, Christians, we rejoice at the destruction of people groups that we disagree with. And that's not Christ-like. That's not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is that we would love those people. That we would love them and that we would see that as a tragedy that it came to that place, to that point. And I want to challenge kind of the way that we can think about other people. um, Because... We get mixed up in this, this thing that it's, it's good for, for people to be brought to justice because it is. We love justice because we love God. But you recognize that God isn't excited and happy about justice falling on a creation that has forsaken him. He hates sin. I said that to a kid once, to a teenager, and they're like, God hates things? They're like, oh, You bet he does. God hates sin, He hates evil, He hates death. These are things that God didn't want for human beings. This is something he didn't want for his creation. It was something that we chose. And now he brings his righteousness into the picture. And this is a sad thing. This is a
0: lament for Pharaoh. You know, some people in some places like Washington or Oregon, I mean, not people from Idaho, certainly, but um, not people like you, but other people, they, they sometimes don't have an accurate picture of who they are. You know they they picture themselves well much better than they are. Have you ever experienced that moment? You, you thought you had it going that day and then you walked by a mirror and you had some awful green thing hanging out of your nose? Oh, that was a good look that that was impressive. There are times that we need a good mirror well, we need we need to know what we really are. It was interesting we had a um, uh, pastor's Conference this week. We had a great time, um, good time together. Um, took the, our whole staff down to the Tri Cities. Um, one of the seminars we went to was on counseling. And, and um, the guy who was teaching the seminar said that he had two favorite questions that he liked to ask people. And um, the first one was this Are you a good person? Well, of course. Who is going to say to a pastor that they're not a good person? I mean, do they really want this to be a longer meeting? <laughs> uh, so, and, and isn't that what we'd like to think of ourselves? I mean, we look at those other people who have police following them, and we think they must be bad. Probably warrants out for them, something like that. But me? Oh, I might make mistakes, but I'm a good person. I am a good person at heart. And so the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he, he thought the same of himself. Uh, look there, verse 2. You consider yourself a lion of the nations. He thinks he's the Lion King. You know, just call him Mufasa. He, he is, <laughs> thank you. He is, he is thinking he is the deal, but look at God's evaluation. But you are a dragon or a monster on the seas. You are something ugly and foul to behold. I smell you before I see you, God says. You you are you are not this thing of beauty this 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 beast of glory you are truly a beast that is dreadful. You know the other question that this pastor city liked to ask people after they told him that they were basically good people. He said oh, don't tell me what it is, but I want you to think in your head what is the one thing that you hope that you will never do again. And you answer that in your head, and the reality is you've done it. That's why you don't want to do it again. Oh, I think I'm now disqualified from being in that good person club. Because here's reality. Scripture lays it out clearly. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 64:6, 6, even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the things that we do that we think are going to impress God are something foul. Something foul. We don't measure up. But we have a God who is pursuing us. We have a God who is addressing our sin. We have a God who is challenging us, who is calling us out, and will go to any extreme in order to do what? in order to bring us to a place where we can know the Lord. Look at what it says there in verse 15. Here's the extreme that God will do. When I strike down all the inhabitants, when I wipe them all out. Now, pretty much when you've wiped them all out, from our perspective, you've gone a little too far. You know, you're not going to get much out of people who are already dead. At least we won't. But understand this. When God wipes them out, They don't cease to exist. They enter into his presence. And look what he says. I will wipe them out. I will strike them all down. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. It is God's desire that on that day, each and every one of us would begin an eternity with him in fellowship with Him. That is His desire. His desire isn't for a smooth and uncomplicated life in this world. It is for an eternity where we are right with Him.
1: You know, it's interesting. I can't help but think about when Jesus was talking um, in the Gospel of Mark, and He said, if your hand causes you to sin, Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Jesus isn't trying to instill a new ministry of self-maiming. What he's saying is this, get serious with your sin. Take drastic measures against your sin because eternity is on the line. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven, he said, missing a hand or with an eye gone than it is for everything that you have to be cast into hell. You know, hell is not a popular thing to talk about in our culture. Uh, We live very much in in a social and cultural environment that doesn't want to talk about consequence. They want to butter everything up, make everyone feel good. I'm not here to make you feel good. The Bible wasn't given to us to make us feel good about our situation. In fact, it's that mirror. It's that mirror that shows us who we are and then reveals the risen Savior to us the answer for our sin problem. The Bible is intended to show us our true situation without God. And some choose not to turn. Some choose not to turn. As you look at the the last section of this chapter, it's really tragic. As the, the nation, as these people go down to their punishment, and where's their glory now? Where's their beauty now? Where's all of that strength and that power now when you've been judged by the Almighty God? And that's coming for all of us. It's why we choose to bow now, is it not? Because we recognize that we are dust. And yet we are valued in the eyes of God because He sent His Son to die for us. Our eternity is what lies in the balance when we play with sin. And you guys, all the great kingdoms... All the masses, all the people that thought they were so great. All the empires that have risen. What happens to them eventually? They fall. Where's the Roman Empire today? Gone. Where are the Assyrians? Where's the Egyptian Empire? Where are all these great nations that back in that time, you couldn't imagine your world without them? You know what? Why are we any different? The only difference is that we are the church, that our allegiance is to Jesus before it is to a nation, so that when the nation goes the wrong direction, we trust in Christ. Amen? We belong to Him first and foremost. My allegiance is to Christ. I love my country. I love my Jesus more. Never get that mixed
0: up. The thing that I see through these chapters so clearly is that we have a God who is willing to go to the wall not because he's right, not because he's in charge, but because he wants you. He wants you. He wants a relationship with you for all of eternity and so he is willing to deal with you here in the midst of time and his desire is that as we go through the stuff of life as as the proverbial stuff hits the fan as, as we go through those seasons of life where things get hard, things get difficult, where we, we don't know where God is or what it is that he is doing, we don't know why this is a happening or what is going to come in the end, that these are things that God allows into our lives. Now, the enemy desires for those things to destroy us, okay? He, we have an enemy who wants those things to destroy us, but we have a God who is willing to use those things to draw us to him so that we might cling more tightly to him. Now, God doesn't want us to cling tightly to him because he needs us. He doesn't. God wants us to cling tightly to him because he is the vine and we are the branches. That's that's what this life is about. It's about clinging to Jesus It's about every day drawing close to him, every day seeking and finding those things that would would separate us from him, those things that would get between us and our Savior and removing them, not allowing anything in there because if we allow something between us and our Lord, it's going to cut off that flow of life and what he desires for us more than anything is that we might have life and have it abundantly. John 10.10, Jesus said, this thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And that is what he wants to do with you. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And the way to abundant life, Jesus says, is to cling to him, to draw your life from him. This morning, if you... If you have never put your life in the Savior's hands, if you have never come to that place where you have surrendered yourself to Christ, then I invite you right now to make that decision. To to not depend upon yourself, to not try to go at your own, to, to not stand on your own, but to trust in the Savior who died upon the cross to pay the penalty for your sin that you might experience true life. You can join him this morning. You can surrender your life to him. You can begin clinging to him. We are going to have some folks who are going to be up here in just a minute who will be willing to pray with you. If you have never surrendered yourself to Christ, this morning come and pray with one of them. For the rest of us, How tightly are we clinging? Are we allowing things to separate us from our Savior? Maybe you need to come for prayer. Maybe you need to come for prayer just because you're feeling, you are feeling distant from the Lord. Maybe there's something that needs to be removed, and you need someone to pray for you to have the strength to see that torn out. The point, the purpose, the goal, is that we would all know the Lord, that we would cling tightly to the vine. Don't leave here. Don't leave here without that connection being everything that it can be. Draw close to Him. Surrender to Him whatever He asks for and cling tightly to the Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. And God, just that we get to do this together. As your body, we get to look to you and cling to you. Father, I pray this morning for any who are distant from you, any who who have allowed anything to interpose between themselves and you for any who have never come to you, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would stir their hearts. And Lord, that you would make your presence apparent to them, that they might know, that they might rest in the reality of being connected with you and having your life flow into them. That's what we desire. We ask you to work it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm